Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Thank you, Steve. We're excited to be here today. We have a really important, really important show today, and we're going to be talking to two very powerful, smart, phenomenal women and learning about their journeys and also what led each of them to be matrimonial attorneys. And so this is a very special episode because we're listening to obviously experts in the field, um, but on top of that, people who have lived through this and uh, understand what it's like to be essentially on, on both sides. And there's actually very few individuals uh, in this field that can that can say that. So it's great to have you here. Today we have Lisa Ziderman and Faith Miller. Um, they are the founders of Miller, Ziderman and Whitaker, and they focus exclusively, exclusively on matrimonial law. Um, so let's talk a little bit, Lisa, you're a managing partner at the firm. Um, you're interesting, you're not only a matrimonial attorney, but you're one of the few matrimonial attorneys that's also a certified divorce financial analyst who Essentially, you're a woman after my own heart. I believe so strongly that finances are part of uh, the divorce. And here with our show, Financially Ever After, that's actually what we talk about every single um, week. And during your divorce yourself, this is when it was a almost about an aha moment um, that made you look into this field. So I'm really excited to hear more about that. You reside here in New York with your husband now of 20 years. You have a daughter. Um, and I love that you have in, uh, raised her to be both independent and also financially savvy. Um, knock on wood, I hope that my daughter and my son turn out the same. Faith, you have represented hundreds and hundreds of clients in many different types of divorces, sometimes very complex uh, and difficult divorces with really unique financial issues. So I'm really excited that you're you're here. Um, and for you, um, you bring really important family values of commitment and diligence to your work, whether you're advocating for your clients in court or helping them avoid the expenses of and the emotional toll of, of court and litigation. Um, I love for both of you that you actually have lives outside of the work that you do, which I think is so important because your field can be truly all encompassing. Um, and so Lisa, you mentioned that you'd love to go to Broadway, which what a better place than, than New York City. And Faith, you are an avid art collector and lover of travel and music. So I'm very excited to have you here. So um, love to just hear from each each of you, um, if you want to just talk about you know what you're doing now, if you have any projects or things that you're working on that you're really excited about, if there's been any interesting um, aha moments that you've had, particularly about finances and uh, your your work as well. Well, I just finished a seminar at the New York City Bar Association on the new tax law, 
So that has been very yes, Lisa, exciting. Lisa, that will keep you busy. That kept me very busy. And I was the moderator and we discussed all of the new tax laws and how they apply to the matrimonial practice, including the issue of the fact that tax that alimony will not necessarily be tax deductible in the future to from the payor and how it affects 529 accounts and the valuations of businesses, etc. So we just had a great turnout for that at the New York City Bar, and it was it was very exciting to see everybody so excited about taxes all of a sudden. That's great. So, yes, it was. It was fabulous, actually. And to see that matrimonial attorneys and tax, how they cross over, and yes. this whole issue of finance and having to know what the tax issues are. And then right after that, I had a client who called me that had spoken to her accountant, and her accountant had said to her, there's no tax dependency exemption for you for 2017. And I said, no, that's completely incorrect. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't start till the end of 2018. And so this idea that matrimonial attorneys need to understand financial issues is so important to our clients. Yeah. And Faith, I'd love to hear from you. Um, we've had some of our clients call us and say, should we postpone getting divorced until uh, maintenance alimony is is not taxable to them. And I'd love to hear from your perspective because my understanding is that the pot is really only so big, right? The pot is only going to be so big and whether it's taxable or not, or not your after tax amount might actually turn out to be the same. What are your thoughts with that? I tend to agree with you 100%. And the truth of the matter is the pot is only so big. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons there's such concern because it's not so much the after-tax dollar to the payee, the spouse who's receiving it, yeah. but the impact is more to the payor who's paying it because if it's deductible to the payor, they're more inclined to make greater payments. And historically, um, the payor spouses oftentimes wanted to pay more in maintenance because they got a benefit from paying it. So they might pay a lesser amount in child support and a greater amount in spousal maintenance because for them, they could do so and realize a better benefit and the payee would receive more money ultimately. They have one more year to do that and after 2018, barring anything unforeseen, chances are it's not going to be deductible. Um, to the payor or uh, taxable to the payee. Which it's interesting because all those women reaching out to say, do we hold off on our divorce? It might behoove them to actually not do that and try and get that deduction, particularly if the payor there, let's say in this case, we're just going to use sexist, yes. um, you know, the, the husband is in a higher tax bracket getting a bigger deduction on the dollars he is paying her. She's receiving those dollars, but maybe she's at a lower tax bracket. So it's, I love it. I feel like it's the biggest wonderful arbitrage out there where during one of the most financially difficult times at least you have a little wind behind your sails and that's going away it is going away and in fact in 2017 before they extended um, the deductibility for another year there was a mad dash in many of our cases to get them resolved yeah. while people could still benefit from the tax structure that existed mm -hmm. um, and now we're on a very short we have a short window uh, to continue to do that. Yeah. So I, yeah. I tend to agree with you. I think that if people can get their divorces done in 2018, they should do it. Yeah. Um, 
and there's absolutely no benefit that I can see from them holding off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lisa, I would love to hear from you, and we've we've talked over lunch and um, really lamented about some of the 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 poor decisions that we see individuals making through this process. Are there any things that you that, that pops into your mind first when you think about women, any financial mistakes that you've seen them make despite you trying to counsel them and guide them not to go down that road? So unfortunately, yes, is the answer. We see certainly women who are um, have no control of their finances, who don't understand their finances and actually don't take an interest in their finances even through the divorce process. Maybe they're afraid of dealing with their finances and if so, they should get help. Um, They should come to someone like you, Stacey, in Mm -hmm, terms mm -hmm. of financial advice. Um, Learning how to deal with your financing, learning what your finances actually are is so important. We also see, and I think this tends to be a very um, big mistake for women, women who want to stay so badly in the marital residence when perhaps it would be financially savvy to sell the marital residence, whether it be because later they may be hit with a capital gain that they didn't think about, and so there's a huge tax component to it, or it may be something that they can't afford but wish to that they could afford because they want to keep their children in the residence. And we see it time and time again where women try to hold on to the residence and then may have to sell it into a bad selling season and that's always a problem so yes I mean that's that's probably one of the biggest mistakes and then when they're so tight that whole issue of taking monies out of retirement accounts to make up for the shortfall where they're paying a 10% penalty and because they're not within the Mm -hmm. retirement age and when they're also having to pay taxes on it at maybe a higher bracket because they're also receiving maintenance but that maintenance isn't enough to cover the marital exactly. residence expenses. Yeah. If they could give up that marital residence and move on and feel more financially secure and not have their money tied up in one asset, that would be a very big component to, to moving on with their lives and being more financially independent. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, we had a, a previous podcast um, and we'll put it in the, the show notes so that everybody can look at it, listen to that podcast. And we interviewed, uh, uh, essentially, a a child had gone through divorce. And we brought up this issue about the home, the home that he was raised in. And and this may not be the, the case for all children, but he said, I was less concerned about staying in my, our, our old home. I was more concerned about staying in the school that I was going to. And his situation was such that um, they ended up moving far away. So it wasn't his home that he missed. In fact, he said that was the least of my worries. It was leaving all of my school friends, leaving um, my neighborhood friends. And it, I felt, was a really important message to send that having that bedroom or whatever that is, that it's less about that. It's 
more about trying to keep them in ideally the same school district. What are your thoughts, Faith? I think each child is different and and the uh, situation you're describing sounds like total upheaval for this young man. Um, I think if you have to make a choice, certainly keeping some uh, semblance of consistency and stability for children is critical. Oftentimes people just can't afford to remain in a marital residence. Um, sometimes they probably couldn't have afforded it when they were all together. You know, many people mm-hmm. live way above mm-hmm. their means. So certainly if the house can um, be sold and both parties can downsize and the custodial parent can get something within the community and reassure the children mm-hmm. that their lives will change somewhat, yep. but not entirely, and that their school will remain the same and their friends and simple things like the town that they're familiar with, um, that's very reassuring to a child. Mm-hmm. So there can be a lot of um, wrinkles with with real estate. Lisa, do you have you seen um, situations where the down payment for that property was made twenty years ago uh, with separate money, and they were married at the point at that point, but maybe uh, he or she each had used their inheritance, but over the years, there's been renovations, um, it's accumulated in value significantly. That's opening a can of worms. What are some of the issues that you would tell your client to think about of, of whether or not it would be 100% marital, a portion of what, portion would be marital, what portion might be separate, what are some of those pieces? So the first question is, what did the person have as of the date of marriage? And sometimes Mm -hmm. we see someone who had an apartment or a house prior to the marriage and then sells it either right before or during the marriage and uses that money for a down payment into the house, into the next house, being the marital house. And then that house appreciates. One can say that the appreciation was due to renovations, but it also could have been passive appreciation. And the question becomes whether the other spouse should get any of that, should receive any of that passive appreciation. And of course, there's the issue of tracing back for the person who had that original apartment or house that they sold, the separate property. So they need to be able to show that they had the separate property. I had a client years ago who had separate property, probably a couple of million dollars of separate property, but he could never trace, because the marriage had been so long, he could never trace that property back into the marital residence. And as a result, he didn't receive the credit. So the lesson, of course, is that when you get married, first, it would be nice if you had the prenup, because that will lay it all out. And then if not, if you keep that documentation, the closing statements, the bank statements, so that you can trace and receive back your separate property. Mm-hmm. And of course, that, keep the check if you can. Exactly. So the, the burden of proof. So talk a little bit about what, Faith, what would that, because the, my understanding is the burden of proof is the, the person that is claiming that any part of this asset is a separate property. And that's absolutely correct. If, if it is the burden of the person who said they had the separate property to demonstrate that. And I had that issue with a client today and I, I told her she had to go back to the early 90s and oh. see if she could find 
anything to document that she had this $150,000 at the date of her marriage. And I suggested that she even call the attorney who had done the original closing because she thought that there would be a record of the fact that there was a bank check for $150,000 that came from a separate account. And if she can come up with some substantiation, at least the argument can be made. Yeah. But without any substantiation, it's oftentimes very difficult to prove. Another point that we always tell our clients is, um, especially when it's the early stages of a, uh, of a relationship, for example, a prenup, is if you have your separate property and you're contemplating buying something jointly, don't put that property, don't put that money into a joint account where you perhaps have wedding gifts and perhaps you're paying your monthly bills and mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. funds are coming in and going out because then it's almost impossible to tether out what was the separate property and what was the marital property and it makes it far more difficult to substantiate a claim for the separate property. I, I liken it to having an empty glass of water uh, so sorry, empty glass, and you're pouring water in from two different sources, two different glasses. Which drop is from glass A or glass B? Yes, absolutely. Um, how do you, you know, even grains of sand, same thing. So sometimes it's impossible to tell. But remember, in New York, we have equitable distribution, not equal distribution. So mm -hmm. all is not necessarily lost if mm -hmm. you can't find that documentation, if you can't trace it all the way back. But if you can show that you received substantial inheritance or had substantial property at the time that you married, it may be that you should receive a greater percentage of the equitable distribution than your spouse. And so you may not be able to trace dollar for dollar that separate property, but the argument argument can be made that you should be, receive a greater share of what's now the marital property. Mm -hmm. And that's an important argument. People have to remember that this is not a 50-50 state. And they tend to forget that. Mm -hmm. it, it really is based upon contribution. And so you need to go back and see what were your contributions and what were your spouse's contributions. Yeah. And that may not just be monetary. That could be taking care of the children. It could be indirect contributions. It could yeah. be taking care of the household. It could be sacrificing a career so that you your spouse could go on and make a very good living for yeah. the family. Yeah. Just a couple more questions about um, real estate, and I and I know we have so much more to to go into. Um, if the house was um, purchased with quote unquote separate property, and um, the in laws wrote a check, does it matter if the check was made out to just the son, or if it was made out to the son and the new wife? Does that matter, or not really? It does matter. It does matter because it, does it, that count for the intent of the gift? It gives the other side the ability to argue that the intent was a gift to both of the parties. If the in-laws are no longer available to testify mm -hmm. at the time of the divorce, there is a possibility, in fact a likelihood I think, that the court will find that it was intended as a gift to both parties and therefore it's, it's mm -hmm. nothing that can be recouped. We have had some success um, arguing where the in-laws were still available to testify that the gift was made uh, out in both names merely for convenience. And it was intended to be a gift only to, to their child. biological child, that is correct. And it would never have been given as a gift to the other party 
um, under the circumstances, certainly not with the divorce. And we've been able to recoup separate property yep. credits based on that argument. So one last question on this, and, and Lisa, this is not an easy one. You talked a little bit about passive appreciation, active appreciation. For our listeners, can you explain the difference between those two and the impact it might have of whether or not that active or passive appreciation might be considered marital appreciation, which could be potentially split or separate? So there's a couple of different ways to look at it. I'm going to use a, a very, what I think is a very clear example. If I owned AT&T stock the day I got married mm-hmm. and my AT&T stock rose in value because of the market mm-hmm. and I did nothing, all I did was own the AT&T stock, then I myself have made no real contribution other than having the AT&T stock. And that's passive. passive. That's yeah. passive. Yeah. If, however, I had an account, a brokerage account, and I traded that brokerage account all through the marriage, for example, every day I was day trading, I was spending my time doing that, that becomes active appreciation. It's very similar with real estate. If the real estate, New York real estate as we know goes up mm-hmm. and down, mm-hmm. but if the real estate increased in value and I had no re- I put no renovations into the real estate, I made virtually no repairs, I changed virtually nothing. All I did was to sit in my apartment and because of market forces, the price of the real estate rose then that again is passive. But if I took monies, including from the marriage, and I renovated and I had my spouse helping me and we were working with decorators and architects and picking out all of our wonderful things in our apartment for that were capital improvements, for example, that becomes active appreciation. And it may be then that that active appreciation, that portion is um, divisible. Mm-hmm. And and be considered marital and would marital. be considered marital. That's correct. That doesn't mean that I, that the spouse who put in the separate property doesn't get that separate property credit. Yeah. However, yeah. So Faith, we talked a little bit about you know some of the the challenges or mistakes we see women make, and one of them is not taking control of money, not necessarily having an interest. And we even talked about maybe it's because of women. Um, that there's a fear about money or an intimidation. Do you see that? And if so, what would you suggest to women who are thinking about divorce and women going through the process? Uh, I don't know if, in, in some in some instances, it could be intimidation. It could be um, the way the relationship is structured. It could be a control issue. So there are some women who would like to know more about their finances, but their husbands have told them that they're taking care of it and you take care of the children and I'll take care of the money and the accounts are in my name and you don't need to know. Uh, I would tell people from the get-go to take an interest, to insist on having credit in their own names, Mm -hmm. insist on having accounts in joint names, um, to insist that they be entitled to review the credit card statements that come monthly to insist on being able to review the account statements that come monthly, even things like um, 529 accounts or Mm -hmm. UGMA accounts for the children, both parents should be listed as custodians on those accounts. The more informed a woman is as early on as possible, the more she knows about the marital finances, 
the more independence she has at a time in her life where perhaps she's contemplating making changes. You know, someone asked me how things were different from our parents' generation. And it, it was a question that I had thought of before, but I hadn't thought of very much in terms of finances. Our parents' generation didn't have options. And in large part, it was because they were completely financially dependent on their spouses. My daughter's generation, our generation to some extent, but the next generation more so, has so many options because by and large, both parties have careers. Both parties have the wherewithal to be mm-hmm. financially independent. I think women are becoming more financially savvy. They are taking more of an interest in establishing their own credit, making their own investments, having accounts in their own names. And that gives people a sense of empowerment, a sense of independence and options. Mm-hmm. So something that we talked about before is that you bring a very different, unique perspective to this. When was the time in your life, um, and I'll I'll ask you first, Lisa, that you decided to go into this profession? Um, Was this a result of going through your own divorce? Or was this something that was always interesting or appealing to you? So finance was always interesting to me. Even as a young child, finance was interesting to me. I love it. I love it. It was more kids. I need to be like you, Lisa. I babysat. I worked in a bakery. I worked in a children's shoe department. I worked when I was 18 years old in Macy's as a sales manager on weekends and then worked full time in the fashion industry during the week. So finance was always important and having independence and control was always important. I was just talking to Faith this week about this and I said my parents had a rule in their house which is do what I say when you live under my roof (laughs) and when you no longer live under my roof you can do as you wish. So from that I wanted to have financial independence and that was incredibly important to me and I was passionate about it even as a young child. When I went through my divorce I saw how important understanding of finance was and how critical it was to have control of your finances. And at that point was, I guess, the pivotal moment when I decided to start my undergraduate degree because I had gone right out to work when I was 18 years old and then to go on to law school. So it was at that moment. And coincidentally, it was also the moment when I met Faith because Faith was representing my daughter and Faith was appointed by the court as an attorney for as an attorney for my daughter to represent her to advocate for her throughout my divorce. So it was fate essentially that I met Faith. I love it. And that's that's how we originally met. So it was all a very pivotal moment for me. And it wasn't until many years later, obviously, that we got together and started our business together. Um, we were on opposite sides of the courtroom, mm-hmm. and we were both zealously advocating for our clients, different positions, and we developed a very mutual respect for each other and decided at some point to go into business together. And that's that's really how we met. So wow. it was all very much part of the divorce process, because had I not gotten divorced, I wouldn't have met Faith. Yes. And I wouldn't have our, our partnership. That's amazing. And so, Faith, have you always worked in this field, or did you come to this from a, other, you know, a different part of law? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because Lisa and I realized in, in discussing some of the issues for today that we, in fact, have so much in common because I, too, was fiercely financially independent as a, as a child, um, also working all sorts of odd jobs and um, teaching guitar and uh, babysitting and tutoring um, children for Hebrew school because I'm fluent in Hebrew and um, very much wanted financial independence. My parents were, were extremely giving and loving and wonderful, but I wanted to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I went, uh, when I finished law school, I wasn't quite certain what area of the law that I wanted to go into, and I wound up working with a judge and from that experience wound up in the county attorney's office and I was put in the family law bureau and sent to family court mostly to prosecute abuse and neglect cases and the light bulb went off and I realized that law is not all black and white and it's not all about shuffling papers. I'm, I love what we do because you genuinely impact people's lives on every single level. Mm-hmm. Their children, their sense of security and stability, their finances, um, their self-esteem. We are helping people through the one of the most critical times of their lives. Even when you're the spouse that wants the divorce, it's still a very difficult thing to go through. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud of what we have created. And I do think that we're unique in that we address the case as a whole, the person as an individual, and help them through every aspect of this ordeal. Mm-hmm. And um, and it is an ordeal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I so respect what you do too, because as you know, there are many, many different types of law and different practices, but this is one of the uh, most personal. It is one of the most personal and I think also most difficult because of that. Um, I agree. Yeah. It's the most stressful part of your life to go through a divorce because you are either fighting for your children Mm -hmm. or you're fighting for money. And so, and what is more critical than those two issues, children and money? That's, Mm -hmm. that's really what it, what a divorce is about at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And One of the things that I think people don't do, which they should do, is to look at the bigger picture and understand that some of the day-to-day things, the arguments, the fights, they don't need to be addressed on a day-to-day level. They need to look at the global picture and to see what is it that I really want at the end of the day and how do I get there? Mm-hmm. and not get caught up in being right or wrong on every single small issue. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, when you're going through a divorce, and, and both Faith and I have gone through our own divorces, you you do tend to get caught up in the day-to-day issues because everything is a stress, and you don't want that other person to win on any level. And so it becomes basically the the win win lose situation it doesn't have to be that way people mm-hmm. can look at the bigger picture of what they want and have a roadmap and work with their attorneys to get there and that that really is something that i think is critical for people to be able to do you talked a lot about um when you go were going through your divorce um how important it was to be on top of your finances 
So Lisa, was that part of what inspired you to go get your certified divorce financial analyst? Because it's not an easy designation, number one. Um, and number two, there are very few attorneys that have that. Financials, of course. I mean, if you're working in divorce, you that's the basic. But uh, not from the attorney side do you see that very often so it was my divorce but more importantly it was the it was the clients coming in and not knowing what they were going to do at the end of their divorce with whether they had enough money or they didn't have enough money whether they should sell their house whether they should keep their house what the capital gains would be what the deduction would be all of those issues and so i really felt that it was a, that it was important to understand what all of those issues are because people look to us for how to plan yes. out the next stage of their life in a, in a lot of ways and one of those ways is financial how do they get to the next stage of their life and at the end yes they have a certain amount of money but they haven't, a lot of women particularly, haven't had this money in their control and they need some guidance. And who are they going to trust more, frankly, than their attorney who they've now worked with consistently and have a rapport with and who has hopefully had their back? So having that certification really gave me the ability to be able to work with those people and, and guide them as to how the tax ramifications were going to affect them or whether they had the deduction or whether they should be saving in the 529 account, all of those types of issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Faith, when you think about your experience of, of going through the divorce, a divorce yourself, do you feel like that gives you any additional insight? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I thought I was a good divorce attorney before my own divorce. I know now that I am a much better divorce attorney having gone through it. I'm more aware mm -hmm. of the issues. Um, I'm more um, oh, I'm more concerned about paying attention to the, the small details of the financial issues, the nuances that people sometimes overlook. Um, and I'm more aware of what our clients are actually going through, the mm -hmm. things that drive them, the, the fears that sometimes freeze them, keep them from acting, yeah. or motivate their actions. And um, I think we have, I have a lot more empathy and a lot more personal knowledge to assist in my professional treatment of the case. Do you, do you ever share with clients that you've gone through a divorce as well? Is that I do. Is that something that they um, react well to? They seem to. Yeah. I, I think that I people, imagine it would be very comforting to, to say she, she gets it. I, I, I do think that is the case. I think there's a lot of common ground um, that I share with my clients. I'm careful not to get too personal, but I am willing to share some degree of relevant personal information so that it's clear to my clients that I do truly appreciate mm -hmm. what they're going through. I appreciate their concerns and their fears about money, about their children, about the future. And I also appreciate their concerns about the very cost of litigation because mm -hmm. it's a, a sad reality that the cost of a divorce can be in and of itself crippling financially devastating and I think at our firm we try very hard to contain those costs to structure our litigation 
or to avoid litigation if possible, to negotiate a settlement, because that's truly in everyone's best interest if it's possible to do that. Mm-hmm. We're coming to a close, so I would love to hear each of you have so much personal experience and professional experience in, in this area. If you were to leave with a, a piece of wisdom for women, what would that be? And, and Lisa, we'll, we'll have you go first. We'll put you on the spot. <laughs> I think the piece of wisdom that I would suggest is to delve into and learn about your finances. I think that's the most important thing you can do. Go to the mailbox open the bills Mm -hmm. don't be afraid of the bills they're there go to the mailbox open the brokerage statements learn about what your assets are what your liabilities are what your budget is so that you can be financially independent because with financial independence comes control and with control i think there's less fear Mm -hmm. of both the present and the future and I think that that's really the best advice that, that women can have. It's a good way to protect themselves and to protect their children as well. And I love how you ended that, that it's important for them to not only protect themselves, but to protect their children. And I know any mom will, will tell you that things she may not do for herself but if it's to help her children, she will do it over again. And I mean, think about, you know, childbirth. We have a child, we forget, we have another one. And you memorize, you know, remember oh, how painful that was. Um, I, I think that's a wonderful strategy because if you know this is going to help your, your children or potentially harm your children, if you don't get on top of your finances, um, that's a huge motivator, huge motivator. I agree. And Faith, what about you? What are some words of wisdom that if you could tell every woman who's thinking about or going through divorce um, that was listening, what would you want to say? Be aware. Be aware of what's going on in your house. Be aware of your finances. Be aware of how your children are reacting to what's going on in the household. You know, many clients will say, well, well, they don't know. They don't realize but oftentimes children do realize. And I think apropos of what Lisa was saying, if the children see that their mother is financially savvy, if the children see that mom has her own credit cards, that mom has her own bank account, perhaps mom has a job or a career or a part-time job, um, I think that's setting a wonderful example for the next generation for the children to see that they can have it all also. They can have a family, have a household, and also work and be independent. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's a stay-at-home mom, have some independence. The credit cards should be in their name only. Mm-hmm. There should be a bank account in their name only. And, and Lisa and I have both worked throughout our careers. I've worked since my three children were born, um, and my children are now in their 20s. And I'd like to think that they're being sincere when they tell me that they are so proud of what we've accomplished and what I've done. Um, Always been there for them, you know, even when they were young. All the judges knew that if I had an issue with one of my kids because I had three under the age of four, if I said somebody was sick and I had to go, they were very forgiving and very respectful of that. My children always came first. 
but I was able to have a career at the same time, and I'm very happy I was. Mm-hmm. And the risk of offending anyone, something that I will say is uh, is hard to see is that going through this process, um, women who don't have a career who have given up their career for every right reason in the world. Um, and, and I personally believe that staying home with the kids is harder. When I come to work on Monday, I I sigh a little bit um, because I, again, I adore my children, but being with them um, is, is hard. In fact, I was with them for two weeks straight and um, I showed up at work and the whole the whole team said, why are you here? I said, I know I'm on vacation, but I can't handle another <laughs> another day with my kids. Um, you know, so count me as not the best mom in the world. But um, I see women who um, don't have that career, don't have that that earning history behind them uh, recover as well from a divorce. And it's a big problem. It's a huge problem. It's it's a it's a huge problem because if you don't have the career, you can't catch up. It's harder. Right? It's much harder. And yeah. frankly, the alimony laws are not very kind. And so, if you're not out there and you're not you know out there year after year, you're not going to catch up. And while you've made that sacrifice, you can catch up when when your when your spouse is out there year after year after year working and moving up the ladder. You're not going to have that opportunity. You've lost the years and you can't make them up. And that's why it's so important to Faith's point that you be out there, even if it's part time, even if it's Mm -hmm. volunteering to be out there and making sure that you haven't lost the traction that's so important to maintain because you won't be able to make it up and you definitely won't be able to make it up in your finances unless you're savvy enough to make sure it's built into a prenup or a postnup mm-hmm. and that that's part of your deal. I stay home, you, I make sure that I'm taken care of later. And they can do that, but they have to, they have to make sure it's part of a contract like a mm-hmm. postnuptial agreement. So, I want to hear from you, Faith, because I know you have a lot to talk about this, and I'd love to hear from you too. Um, what is a postnup? Everybody talks about prenups. I, I think we all know what prenups are. Before you're getting married, you agree upon X, Y, Z. If for God forbid we we get divorced, um, but postnups uh, not so talked about. And um, I, I talked about my husband with a postnup because now I have this beautiful, wonderful very valuable business. Uh, he wasn't so keen. <laughs> uh, and so here I am even, you know, very happily married. Um, we've been married, you know, we've been together now going on 20 years. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot to think about here, right? So a postnup is very similar to a prenup, but it's negotiated after the marriage. And sometimes people will say, well, I'm thinking about a divorce. I'm willing to stay together but I want to pin down our financial rights and responsibilities right now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people do that for sincere reasons. And sometimes people do that as a stage in divorce planning. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's like leading mm-hmm. someone down the garden path. But as we were discussing um, the issues of planning and prenups, you know, we have 
a lot of women who come to us and it's very sad, um, but there's a level of naivete and they will say to us, but he promised me that I could stay home and take care of the children and he would build his career and it would be for both of us. And people really need to understand those promises are not binding. Those promises mean nothing. And it is heartbreaking to see people who have given up um, vibrant careers for the best of reasons, to stay home and be with their children, whether it was a joint choice or one party wanted it. Regardless, this is what they did. And the promise was, don't worry, I'm working for both of us. But that promise is unenforceable. Mm-hmm. Unless it's on a piece of paper. Unless and you have a prenup or a postnup. So if you're married and you're discussing staying home with the children, we're going to have kids now, I want you to stay home or I'm willing to stay home, say, okay, but before we do this, I want a postnup because I don't want to be sitting around the house nine months pregnant and then have you decide that you're out the door and I have a baby or twins or a couple of children. And I can't regain my career as quickly. I can't go back and finish my degree. So that's when a post-nup could come into play. And they are very effective. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great piece for us to, to end on of women who don't catch up from divorce. Why? What we can do. And how we can protect ourselves when we decide that we're going to have that career be at home and how to make sure that we don't become one of those statistics because you're right um, Lisa you mentioned and, and Faith I know you're right along with this the the, the maintenance laws particularly in New York State uh, are not favorable for women who have not worked in a long time don't necessarily give you anywhere the amount of time that you need to recoup uh, all those years where you weren't earning um, and building towards that that earning capacity. So a, a lot of pieces. I can't thank you enough, um, but I would love to hear, I know our listeners are going to want to visit your website, um, also see what you guys look. And just so everybody knows that's listening right now, they are dressed impeccably uh, <laughs> to the nine. So I wish you could. I wish you could see Lisa and Faith here. Um, we we are looking like one, you know, very very uh, smart looking group of of ladies. Um, so I know they're going to want to visit your website. Um, also see what you're all about. So how can they do that? Where's the best way to to learn more about the, the firm? So they can Google us, Miller Ziderman and Whitaker, or they can go on to MZWNYLaw. Dot com and learn about our firm. And of course, they are free to email each of us. My email is lz at mzw-law.com. And Faith's email is fgm at mzw-law.com. And all of you listening, um, we'll also put these in the show notes, too, so that you have that. But again, just, uh, just you know, www.mzwlaw, and that's M as in Mary, Z as in Ziderman, W as Whitaker, law.com. Uh, we'll make sure that we put that there. Um, you've got a great website, a lot of great information, too, to get educated about some of the things you should be thinking about. So thank you uh, again, Lisa and Faith, for being here. Uh, it's great to have you. And I also just want to let our listeners know about something that's 
really important. If you are a woman who feels like she needs to be a little bit more savvy about your own money, I, I beg of you to visit our website, www.francisfinancial.com. We have a second opinion, and it's made for you. It's to help you understand what assets you have, the tax implications, how they're invested, so that you can start to get more knowledgeable about your finances. So if you are interested in that, again, please uh, go to our website and look at the information. And you can also email me personally, Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at FrancisFinancial.com. Thank you again for tuning into Financially Ever After, and we'll be with you in two weeks. <music>